Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. It's my pleasure to introduce to you our first speaker today. Thomas Osborne is a professor of philosophy and the chair of the philosophy department at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, and he's also a member of the Center for Thomistic Studies. Uh, He has just published a book through Cambridge, Cambridge University Press called Aquinas on Virtue, and he wants everyone to buy it. Even though, uh, yeah, well, I won't tell you the price. You can find out for yourself. Um, but I heard uh, Professor Osborne lecture a few years ago at another Thomistic Institute event. Uh, he spoke on the third way, and I found the talk to be very illuminating, instructive, educational. It was very helpful. And I look forward um, to hearing him speak today. I think we're all in for a treat. I can't say that every lecture I've heard has been illuminating, instructive, and helpful, but his, um, I think, will be. So please join me in welcoming Professor Thomas Osborne. I'm kind of very happy to be talking about the permission of sin, God's permission of sin at this conference, because sin is very curious as the one evil that God doesn't really will at all. So we talked about the different kinds of evil yesterday. Father Brent gave a good description. There's an evil of punishment. There's also evil that's not human, the corruption of substances. Lion eats a deer, deer dies. We can talk about God willing these evils because of the conjoined goods. But the evil of sin is one evil that God doesn't will, doesn't cause. So it's a, a, a unique kind of evil, and, well, and the worst. So I'll have three points. First, we'll talk about how God is omnipotent and good, so he draws good out of every evil including the evil of sin. This is important to recognize in God's treatment of sin. The second point is that God causes the act of sin, but only the act, the being and the act, not the defect. So God is not the cause of sin, although he moves the will in the act. And then the question is, if as The Jesuit yesterday mentioned, I was very happy to hear a Jesuit defending the infallibility of God's providence. Uh, So God permits sin. Why? 
Well, it's for the greater good of the perfection of the universe, and probably more particularly for the elect. So those are the three points today. So the first point is that God is omnipotent and good and is able to draw good out of every evil. I have a fairly lengthy handout, but I have a hard time following talks personally, and I like just to read through handouts sometimes, so this is an aid to people who are like me. And more or less, the texts follow the talk. So you can kind of look at the texts that I'm thinking of, or at least the principal ones. There's always going to be more texts on, on any of these particular issues. So the first point, just in general, why does God allow evil? Right? We know that God can do whatever he wants. He's all-powerful. We also know that God is good. Now, given these two premises, we know that evil is going only to be allowed for the sake of something good. We can't always see it, right? So I often wonder, why did God create mosquitoes? And this is a problem with the existence of God. You would think God is so good, he could come up in a world without mosquitoes, or there's somebody here from the great state of Maine, black flies, which are particularly awful now. Why does God allow these to exist? Well, as beings, they're good in their own way, and in some way, even though we might not see it, these things are part of the perfection of the universe. And so the standard passage, or there are lots of passages. Thomas is particularly fond of this quotation of, of Augustine in the Enchiridion, um, that since God is maximally good, he would not allow any evil to exist in his works if he were not powerful enough and good enough to draw good even from evil. And so what are the kinds of examples that he usually gives? One is the lion. The lion lives how? Eating other animals, okay? It's bad for the deer or the antelope or whatever it is to die, but it's good to keep lions going. Right? Just part of the perfection of the universe and the order. Among human goods, think about the martyrs. We just celebrated my confirmation saint yesterday, Justin Martyr. Why did he die? Because somebody else sinned, okay? So you wouldn't have, oh, we also have Father Pro here, like Miguel Pro, right? We wouldn't have had martyrs like Miguel Pro or St. Justin Martyr if not for other people's wickedness. That's just the way that the world works. Those of you who have students, right, you wouldn't be able to develop patience, kindness, long-suffering without your students' many defects. So that's one principle. Now, the second principle is because God is all-powerful, 
And because God is the cause one way, we don't cause knowledge in God. We don't cause God to react. I mean, the Bible might have God walking around in a garden, but that's metaphor, okay? God doesn't have a body. God doesn't change his mind. It's a kind of anthropomorphic notion of God. So God causes every being, including human choice. Everything that happens is part of God's infallible providence. It's not like he tries really hard and then people, well, mess it up, okay? At least with respect to his will of good pleasure and his consequent will, all the details are part of God's providence. Even evils. Now, evils, as we learned yesterday, are not at least as evil beings. They're privations of beings, defects. Evil is parasitic on the good and on being. But all of these things in which there is evil, there are beings, and God causes that being. God has immediate and certain providence over all individuals, including individual actions, including human acts. As Father pointed out yesterday, that's not violating human freedom because God doesn't cause other natures that determine us to one thing or another. We aren't determined to one thing or another apart from happiness or the ultimate end, but by our own nature, we contingently cause acts and our contingency is the result of intellect being able to distinguish between different alternatives and the will choosing one of the alternatives or choosing to act or not act. So when we think about God's motion of human free choice, we're not just concerned with his creation of the will or of free choice, which includes intellect and will. God gives both the power to will and he moves the will to act. So there's a particularly clear passage in the Summa Contra Gentiles, passage three in my handout. God not only gives powers to things, but beyond that, no thing can act by its own power unless it acts through his power. So man cannot use the power of will that has been given him except insofar as he acts through the power of God. Now, the being through whose power the agent acts is the cause not only of the power, but also of the act. So God is not just the cause of our will. God is the cause of each and every act of our willing. The same way with an artist and a brush, the artist causes what the brush does. Okay, so if you have an intellect and a will, you have the power to choose. You might choose something better or worse. You might choose, choose between good actions. You can also choose between good and bad, at least in this life. 
And angels can choose between good and bad if they are offered supernatural grace, which they were, and some of them rejected it. I mean, Thomas thinks this is important to keep in mind here that human beings are the only group as a whole which just uh, tends to fail for the most part. He thinks that a minority of angels failed and rejected God's grace. And below us in nature, uh, a minority of things don't work out. Humans are the only beings that we have an ultimate end, but we just fail to achieve it. It's because of the greatness of the end, needing God's extra help, and also because of original sin and our weakness. So God gives us an intellect and a will where the kinds of things that can sin and God moves the will of the one sinning. As we'll see, God does not cause the sin, though he caused the movement of the will. Why do we want to say this? Because remember, the causality is one way, God to creatures. And we don't want to make creatures into little gods. There is a tendency, I didn't know about it, Ed Fazer talks about it, it's called, I think, non-classical theism or something. It seems absurd, but it's basically this view that God changes his mind about things. And God is basically like Zeus, and he's like a super powerful human being. That's not Thomas's view. That's not the typical Christian view, okay? <laughs> God is not like us. Uh, Thomas, uh, I didn't include it in my texts, but I thought afterwards I should have. In the commentary in the sentences, when he talks about God's causation of sin, Thomas is very clear that he writes, if the human will could produce some action of which God is not the author, the human will would have the nature of, and it could be A or the, there aren't articles in Latin, of the first principle, right? So if we said that God was not the cause of the being in motion and sin, we'd be making creatures gods, a first principle, and we aren't. So that's the first point. It's to recognize that God not just gives us intellect and will, but he moves our powers to act, and this movement is infallible. So what about sin? Does God cause sin? No, okay? Uh, if you weren't clear on this already, the Council of Trent's pretty clear about this. Augustine's pretty clear about this. Thomas is very clear as well. Calvin, however, the Thomists tend to accuse Protestants in general of holding that God can cause sin, and they attribute it to Luther, but the clearest statement is clearly in Calvin in the Institutes. Calvin comes out and says that God causes sin the way that he causes good acts. So both in the natural order and in the supernatural order, you have double predestination, where reprobation is like predestination and God causes good acts and meritorious acts. He doesn't distinguish so clearly between natural goodness and supernatural merit. And 
sin. Not Augustine's view, not Thomas's view, and the Council of Trent, like all councils up, well, most councils up to a fairly recent one, it's usually pretty clear what it's saying. When it's ambiguous, it's on purpose to take into account different opinions, and there's a nice anathema at the end of a lot of points, so you know, well, I better not think this, or I'm anathematized, okay? So don't think it, especially if you're Catholic, that God causes sin. So then how is it that God moves the will, and yet God does not cause sin? Well, we have to think a little bit about what sin is. Sin is an act of the will involving the intellect or an act of the intellect and will. This act has being, but it's accompanied by a defect. What is this defect? The act lacks the rule, the divine rule by which God orders things to their end. Okay. And humans, unlike other animals, we act thinking about things as instances of the good in general, and that involves a rule. Okay? Sometimes things go wrong. It seems like occasionally you get whales who want to sun themselves on the beach, and it goes horribly wrong for the whale. But the whale doesn't make that decision. Most human beings are like that whale. They just choose the wrong things for human beings. They're unlike the whale in that they actually choose it. There's a rule involving the human good, and people reject the human good and the divine good. So, what does God cause? If you look at my text 5, it mentions how there's the voluntary act and the act's disorder which involves the acting apart from the rule. In, in text 6 and 7, you see that what is the cause of this act? The being of the act is caused by God. The act is caused by God. But the defect or the disorder is caused by the secondary cause and not by God as the created cause. So let's look at the text 6. God is a cause of every action insofar as it is an action. However, sin names a being and an action along with a certain defect. Right? The defect is from a created cause. The defect is not traced back to God as a cause. Instead, it is traced back to free choice. In the same way, the defect of limping is traced back to the crooked leg as its cause and not to the power of affecting movement. And yet the power of affecting movement is a cause of whatever motion is involved in the limping. This is an example he uses a lot. Right? Somebody who's got the moving power can walk around. The, his walking is caused by the moving power. But there's a material obstacle, namely the crooked leg, the limp. What causes the limping, not the motive power of the animal, but the secondary cause, 
which is the leg that's subordinated. And so when you have subordinate causes, the defect is caused by the secondary cause, like in human law or human government. If you have a ruler who's ordering something justly, and then you have, say, a uh, a police agency that's hiding some incriminating information, the hiding of the incriminating information belongs to the subordinate. It's not the will of the primary ruler who is uncorrupt and uh, it's not his fault. It's the fault of the one who's not carrying out the orders. And so you attribute the fault then or the error or the defect to the secondary cause. Now, sometimes you can attribute defects to a cause that's not ordered when somebody has the power to do something and the obligation not to do it. So that's not the same ordered series, but you might still say, well, that person caused something. Like a pilot of a ship, if he's able to avoid running into rocks and he still runs into them, that's attributed to the pilot of the ship even though he's not part of any ordered sequence or per se causality. But in the case of God, there's no uh, obligation. There's no rule that God would have to follow. Right. So God can't cause sin. Why can't God cause sin? This is text 8. Uh, It's one of his many arguments. But what is sin? It's putting yourself outside the order that God establishes. The order of the nature. The order to the supernatural end. So what happens with sin? It's this turning... Mortal sin is the primary and typical instance of sin, since sin is not a univocal notion. It's turning away from the last end, your last end, the last end of the universe. So when a creature sins, what is the creature doing? The creature is acting outside of, or most properly in mortal sin, against this rule or ordering. And the sinner is turning away from the last end. God can't do this. That's one thing God can't do. It just not a limit in his power so much as it just doesn't make sense. God can only will himself at his own goodness. He can't will something other than himself. Creatures can. And so God can move the will of the creature, but the turning away from the end doesn't belong to God. The creature's intention, the species of the creature's act, These do not specify God's actions. We even find in other cases where God orders, say, the devil to do something. The devil doesn't intend what God intends, right? Whether it's the good of punishment, tempting, or even, uh, I always wondered 
in The Exorcist. I always think this is the great Catholic movie, The Exorcist. They asked me, what Catholic movie should we show to incoming kids to get them excited about the Catholic faith? And I said, The Exorcist, and nobody, nobody took me up on that. Okay, right? Somehow this is all permitted for the good. God's got a reason for it. But the devil's not doing it for whatever reason God has. Or Thomas in his commentary on Job, he's having uh, Satan afflict Job with all sorts of, all sorts of, basically every evil you can think of, except he doesn't get rid of Job's wife, his goods, his animals, his things. And... Um, some of you might think that's because uh, the wife is too dear to Job for God to afflict him that way. There are other explanations. <laughs> but at any rate, Job's affliction is intended by God for the good of Job to show his worth. The devil doesn't intend that, right? The devil cannot intend what God intends. So sin is one act that God just can't do. It's from the perspective of the agent. The species that is given from some sort of lack of rule, uh, some sort of rule or the lack of the right rule, there's no lack of the right rule when God's acting. There's no improper intention. So the defect is entirely from the human will not from God, but all the being in the act, all of its perfection, everything existing, this comes from God and is part of God's infallible providence. Sinners can turn away but from God, but God cannot turn away from himself. Sinners always act in accordance with divine providence, but not from that intention. We have reason and will. We're supposed to act in accordance with providence, but we don't do it. Well, some of us do. I can see some of you are saying, speak for yourself. Okay, but a lot of people don't do it. Okay, all right. So then the question is, why does God permit sin? Why does God even bother doing it, allowing it? Contributing his part to it. All right. Well, he permits it for the perfection of the universe and for the good of the elect. It's not outside of his providence that way. The creature's acting outside of his, of his order, but the occurrence of the sin is not outside of his order. So when we think about the different evils that we mentioned yesterday, these are evils. God doesn't will the evil, but we can say that God wills these things. There are conjoined goods. Somebody mentioned this in a question. There was a discussion. I raised my hand, but not in time. I thought, well, I can talk about it tomorrow. So goods or evils, evils such as punishment or the death of animals, the corruption of natural substances, these have conjoined goods that are willed by God. 
the corruption of one thing leads to the preservation of another. Punishment is good. We heard a little bit about that yesterday. We might hear more about it. It's not just remedial. Civil punishments in this life might be mostly remedial, okay? Uh, punishment for Thomas Aquinas, it's not just to make people better. And certainly in the next life, it's not, right? Um, once you're in purgatory, you can't merit anymore, so you aren't going to get better there. And once you're in hell, well, you're just stuck there, right? You're not going to uh, improve your life in hell. Your last opportunity is here, maybe today. Okay. So at any rate, so the death of animals preserves the natural order of the universe. Punishment preserves the order of justice. Sin has no conjoined good. It's merely permitted. But why is it permitted? It's for this good of justice. God's attributes are shown in many ways. Thomas was very keen on the later works of Augustine. Franciscans would often, well, first they didn't know the, the later works of Augustine so well. They just had collections. Second, generally Thomas is much closer to Augustine on theological issues than Franciscans were. Things like original sin, predestination, uh, the Trinity, the relations, the ways of thinking about the Trinity. Thomas is always very close to St. Augustine. So sometimes God predestines some people, that shows his mercy. Sometimes he allows them to sin, that shows his justice. So both predestination and reprobation are to show his attributes in an exterior way. It doesn't make things better for God, but his external glory in the universe. Unlike the new theism, uh, Christians believe that God is outside the universe and not part of the internal ordering of the universe and its parts. He's not like some super being. So when we think about God causing sin, he causes only the act. He doesn't cause the species of the act, though, in the sense of it's not part of his willing. It belongs only to the creatures. Why does he do it? If God wanted to, he could just stop everybody from sinning, right? God can't command or counsel sin, but God could just make it so that people don't sin and still act freely. He did that with Our Lady. He did that with St. John the Baptist. Some people now, uh, it seems like since the 14th century, People think he did that with St. Joseph, right? God, if he wanted to, could make us all like Our Lady or St. Joseph or St. John the Baptist, but he doesn't. And this is the problem of blindness. God can even cause a spiritual blindness, not for its own sake, 
but either for his justice or for his mercy. Thomas thinks sometimes even he allows people to fall into sin, it's for their own good. Repentance, penance is a great good. Somebody was talking about that yesterday. You wouldn't have the virtue of penance if you didn't have sin. Repentance is a great good. Sometimes it might involve someone else's good. That's more justice. But again, this is not a causing of sin. God doesn't cause sins the way he causes meritorious acts. It's allowing people to sin and not giving the... Then, since later than Thomas, we think that God always gives the power uh, not to sin, at least sometimes in some instances, sufficient graces. But the actual act uh, God doesn't give. He allows people to sin. He allows them to be blind spiritually. So we see that in text 13. Why does he allow sin? It's not for the destruction of human beings. It's not good just by itself for people to be failed humans. Sometimes it's his justice and punishment or in his mercy towards others. Justice and mercy explain why he allows some to sin and not others. And so if you think about the perfection of the universe, you have this on text 14. It is necessary for God's goodness, which is one and simple in itself, to be represented in a multitude of ways and things, since created things cannot attain to God's simplicity. And so diverse grades of things are required for the completion of the universe, with some things occupying high places and others the lowest places in the universe in order for this multiplicity of grades to be conserved among things. God permits certain evils to be affected, lest many goods should be impeded. So then, suppose we think of the whole human race as a complete collection of things. God willed that some men, whom he predestines, should represent his goodness in the mode of mercy by sparing them. And he willed that other men, whom he reprobates, should represent his goodness in the mode of justice by punishing them. And this is the reason why God chooses some and reprobates others. It's not because of foreseen merits, whatever that would mean. It's not because some people try really hard, and so then God gives them extra graces, because the trying hard is the result of God's providence. So it's part of the order of the universe. Now, it's very important, especially with the rise of Protestantism in the 16th century, not to see reprobation and predestination as the same kind of thing, right? What happens with predestination? God wills people to be in heaven then he causes them to accept the graces and gives them merit. It's completely unmerited. 
And the greatness of it is greater than anything we can imagine. I was thinking about this, I mean, just recently with Good Friday. Three hours on the cross, it's pretty bad. But an incorruptible body forever, there's not really any proportion. And if you think about the beatific vision, greater than anything we can imagine, this kind of good. Similarly, sin is just stupider and nastier and worse than anything we can imagine. People are worried about losing their job or losing their mind or cancer. Not as bad as sin. Right? Great goodness, great badness. And the punishment is due to sin. So merits are prior to meritorious acts. But it doesn't work that way with punishment. Punishment is due to the sin. So there's an order of justice and punishment because you have something due there. And God permits it. Whereas with merit, there's no strict justice. It's just like winning the lottery, but a whole lot better than winning the lottery. And nothing due strictly speaking, at all, except insofar as the Holy Ghost and the whole Trinity is in us and God acting in us is a source of merit for the act. But it's not us, right? Sometimes I think, I mean, I think most people probably don't need to think about Thomas's notion of predestination and reprobation if people are preaching. You just, if you tell people everything good is from God, everything bad is from yourself, that's probably enough, right? But at any rate, it's important to keep those two orders distinct or you run into uh, certain kinds. Later Calvinists cleaned up their act a bit. Some of them even liked Thomists uh, because they liked Augustine and Thomists understood Augustine, I think, better than Calvin did. But uh, yeah, the early Protestants were pretty strictly double predestination. So it's for the good of the universe. That's why sin is allowed. And so what goods then are there? Well, principally the universe is for human beings. Most human beings don't attain their end. They don't become good as human beings, which, and then they don't certainly become good in the supernatural order. So what happens then? In some ways, at least from scripture, this is not philosophy, it seems like even the punishment of the reprobate is ordered to the good of the elect. So everything in the universe, is all, every little thing that happens is for the good of those God has chosen. Things might be evil in themselves, but they're part of this good order. Everything. And ultimately, even the reprobate and their punishments are for the good of the elect. Now, Nietzsche sees in this a kind of uh, enjoyment or kind of, well, it's great, I'm here in heaven, you're not. That's not what this is about. If you understand the evil of sin, you see how punishment is due to it. 
It's not a pleasure in somebody else's misery for its own sake. The concern is with justice. And this brings us to the question, why does sin exist? Creatures are capable of sin if they're intellectual creatures. Creatures are capable of acting without the rule. And God lets some people do so and even causes the being of the act and the act itself absent the defect. So we see in 16, text 16, which is from the Summa Contra Gentiles, why does God help some people and let others fall into sin? You don't want it to say, well, some people try really hard, and so God sees them trying and he gives them extra graces. It's pretty close to Pelagianism. Not exactly the same thing, but very close. Uh, Thomas, by the way, when he says Pelagianism, often means what later became called as semi-Pelagianism. He just lumps all these things together. Now, uh, people wouldn't. So, why does he do it? Thomas says there's no reason to ask why. It can't be because of foreseen merits, because where would these merits come from? The creatures somehow, in some abstract future, freely act, and God sees it and then chooses to make them? There were some crazy Jesuits who held a view like that, but it doesn't make any sense. So, what happens then? Well, it just depends on God's will. He makes things out of nothing. Now, it's not a case... And Thomas is pretty clear in the first part of the Suba, question, question 23, Article 5, Add 3, that this is not a case of acceptance of persons or giving what's due uh, unequally because nobody deserves grace or merit and punishment's only given because of sin. But in the beginning, it's just his will. He makes some things higher than others. So we make different vessels out of clay. Some of them might be chamber pots. Some of them might be nice things for serving meat. Right? You need to have different kinds of things. Some will be better than others, though. And he quotes uh, Paul to the Romans. He likes this passage. Or does not the power potter have power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Right? God is like the potter. The clay is like human nature. God makes some higher than others. Doesn't make any of us here, I'm certain, as high as St. Joseph, John the Baptist, or Our Lady, even if you try really hard. So what happens then is that sin, in terms of its cause, is explained by the secondary cause. So when we talk about God as the cause of sin, to, to recap, God doesn't cause sin as such. He causes the act of sin, the being of the sin. He can't turn away from himself he can't turn away from his own providential order. But why does he allow some creatures to do this? Well, it's to manifest his goodness in the universe. Sometimes he manifests his mercy in the few who are predestined. 
Other times he manifests his justice in the many who are, who are reprobate. And why do some people belong to one category rather than the other? Why does he permit sin in some people and not in others? Right? It's not because you're great and you think, well, I'm not Hitler, so I'm pretty good. Right? God didn't make you Hitler, but that's not because of anything in you. Right? Whatever in you that isn't Hitler is from God. Right? Well, not whatever in you that isn't Hitler, but right, you aren't Austrian, you aren't. I'm just saying the fact the fact that you aren't worse than you are, and I'm not much worse than I am, that has to do that has to do with God. Not with it has to do with me in a secondary way. If I sin, it's my own fault. I'm the one causing the sin. But whatever good's in me doesn't come from me, even on a natural level. This isn't just supernatural. Even philosophically speaking, I am not primarily the source of my own goodness and my good acts. And again, in the Summa Contra Gentiles, in the third part, after talking about providence, he kind of sums things up because he talks about providence in general the infallibility of providence covering all contingent events, the infallibility applying even to free human acts. He talks about providence even with respect to permitting sin, which is after he's already established these other, other facts about providence. And you get to the end and he quotes scripture. He mentions Ephesians. He predestined us unto the adoption of children. The adoption is not something we merit. God just, if we're children of God, he decided to make us so, by his will. Why does he give grace to some, not others? Um, I have loved Jacob, but have hated Esau. Wasn't that Esau came out of the womb kind of, um, oh, I'm going to be rotten now, and I'm going to sell my birthright because I'm really hungry after I went hunting? No, it's part of God's providence that Jacob would carry on the line. Didn't mean that all of a sudden in the beginning, uh, God could foresee that one would be good and the other bad. Right? You go back to Ephesians. He chose us and him before the foundation of the world, before any of us were created, both temporally, but also just causally. The permission of some to sin and others not is in God's will, although the cause of sin as sin is in the creature. Thank you. Testing, testing. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for your talk. Uh, it's, I think, very pertinent to a lot of conversations, especially for people who uh, struggle with the dichotomy of justice and mercy. I think, especially in the apologetic context, that's difficult for a lot of people. And so my question is, uh, today when I think there's a sort of Marcionism latent in the way that people think about the faith, that there's the sort of God of justice of the Old Testament, the God of mercy of the New Testament, and that sometimes God's in a just mood and sometimes he's in a merciful mood. How can we sort of, I think, improve our language to talk about this such that we don't have a God divided amongst himself or who has different sort of moods, but that justice and mercy are not sort of incompatible virtues? Do you know the sort of tension that I'm trying to get yes, at? Yes, I mean, I, I've even heard people say things that like, 
traditional precepts in the old law are incompatible with human dignity, right? I mean, people say things like this. They talk as if the Bible isn't inspired. You need to have a return to Christian faith, people believing that the whole Bible is inspired, people willing to actually read and learn rather than imposing their own beliefs on the Bible or the Christian tradition. I think that's a problem now. Everybody's a judge. Everybody's got an opinion. And if the Bible disagrees or the Christian tradition disagrees, well, go with your gut feeling. It's sin, basically. I mean, unbelief primarily, uh, Newman pointed this out in the 19th century very clearly many places. Unbelief is primarily a sin. It's a lack of receptiveness to God, a lack of being attentive to what God is saying. And how to make that acceptable to people, I don't know. But I do know that the one way is not to say that there's something wrong with the Bible or with the Mosaic Law. Right? The Mosaic Law was given by God to Moses, and the entire Old Testament is inspired. And people who want to reread it or water it down, I mean, God help them. Yeah. And then in this context, though, when we talk about predestination or evil, how can we talk about justice and mercy in a way that doesn't seem like God is is sort of flip, flips at random? I think I think we're getting at this with, with the faith and there are some things we can't know, but is there a language to talk about justice and mercy as, um, you know, both virtues, not like a sort of fire and water where one can exist where the, only where the other doesn't? Yeah, it's almost, I mean, it's just, it's, I think people want to think that we know a lot about God, right? I mean, I think most of what Thomas says in the Summa Theologiae is true, but, you know, compare it with a geometry textbook or something, and it's pretty limited. We don't know much about God himself, his attributes, really. And then when it comes to God's choices or supernatural things, we don't even know it's possible. And so I worry that in apologetic context, people often want to try to make it like, oh, I'm going to argue people into belief in God. Now, removing obstacles is good. Showing the reasonableness of the faith is good. And there are different rhetorical techniques that can be used. But I worry a lot of times that people are more into arguments um, and often probable or rhetorical arguments rather than into God. It's a problem, I think. I don't know really what, I mean, culturally there's an obstacle. John Rist calls it the American heresy, where everybody's basically good and uh, kind of God deserves to kind of help everybody out, uh, giving all the graces that he would give to anybody. Okay, this is just a cultural problem. I don't know where it comes from. I think people need to be disabused of this notion. If people are basically good, there's no need for Jesus Christ, right? There's no evangelization. There's no apostolate unless people recognize that they're sinners and they need to be saved and they need grace. And to me, this is a principal problem because if you talk about how great Jesus is, well, if he's not our redeemer... And if people aren't in really bad shape, what's the point? Right? There isn't any. Um, 
So I think that there's a real cultural obstacle there. And I think people often give in to different cultural intuitions that people have. And the basic points of the faith are just passed over or neglected. And I worry about that. I mean, it's one thing if you explain things plainly to people and they reject it, and that's going to happen. Look, I mean, the medievals were always very aware of Mark's gospel. When's our Lord going to come after the gospel's preached everywhere and it's universally rejected? There's not a whole lot we're going to do. It's sometime the gospel will be preached everywhere and universally rejected. But if you don't preach it and it's rejected, that's pretty bad. Just to follow up yeah. on that. Just to follow up on that, if I may, mm -hmm. I think the point you just made was very important, and, and you may not realize this, but you did kind of address it in your paper about mm -hmm. two-thirds of the way through when you talked about the way in which a person merits heaven is one thing, and the way in which a person merits hell is another. And I mm -hmm. want to highlight that distinction yeah, for us. It's important. Here's why. There's a creeping universalism, mm -hmm. or it's crept already, uh, in the church on earth today, certainly in the United States. And under this kind of creep, creeping universalism, it's almost as if heaven is owed and hell is just unfair. Mm -hmm. But you had a point in your paper about two-thirds of the way through where you want to say it's actually the opposite. Yeah. Hell is owed to the, the fault of a, mm -hmm. that we can commit in our nature. Mm -hmm. But heaven is owed to meritorious acts which flow from grace, which is... Mm -hmm. ultimately gratuitous with mm -hmm. respect to our nature. So heaven is a reward mm -hmm. that's kind of ultimately unowed, mm -hmm. whereas hell is owed yeah. to nature. Could you just highlight that and explain it a little bit more? Because I think it gets at precisely what you were just talking yeah. about. It's the opposite of the view that, hey, we're yeah. all just good. I was worried about it in the context of double predestination and Protestantism. Okay. I didn't see the relevance to this point, but you're right. People act like people are basically good and everybody should go to heaven. I remember one of my kids when he was six at school, they had a little funeral for a pet at school that had died and gone to heaven. And my son was saying, uh, I don't think pets go to heaven. And people were disturbed and they said, well, pets, of course, can go to heaven and be happy there. And my son said, well, if they can go to heaven, they can go to hell, too. <laughs> but he, he was only six, though, so I think he missed some of the nuances. About... <laughs> but, but at any rate, it's absolutely important that the order of justice, in terms of what people are owed, what people are owed, that's what hell is about. Hell is about justice, people getting what they deserve. I think people just don't see the absolute horror of sin. I mean, it's worse than anything you can think of. Newman was fond of repeating it, but it's in the medievals. It's in Anselm when he's meditating about even a smallest sin, just destroy the whole universe. All of the evil you can think of that's not a sin, that's going to be the sin is going to be worse. And we just do not see the evil of sin. And we don't think about justice. Justice we think of as, I don't know, rehabilitation or something. And then the greatness, I think it's not just the undeserved aspect that it's helpful for people to think about, but what Christianity is offering is more than anything else 
dreams of offering. I mean, the beatific vision, the view of God forever. I mean, people talk about lengthening life, and I'm thinking, well, you know, except for my sins and I need to do penance, I could just let me die now. I don't want to live forever. But the uh, that's not what we're talking about with eternal life. And people have, we, we have no idea what a great thing this is. No idea at all. Our divine adoption. No idea. And it's all unmerited. It's, it's offered to us. If we want, we can accept it. We can accept it. And that's not just at all. It's not even proportionate to our nature. There's nothing, no reason to think it's even possible apart from revelation. Well, no reason to know that it's possible apart from revelation. There are probable arguments, right? I don't know if that addresses your point. And I, I think people are just twisted. So they've got this view that everybody's basically good and heaven is kind of a playing golf for a long time or playing video games. And this is what we let kids do. So this is what they should let me do. It's strange. Yeah. Uh, hi. Thanks. Um, so I should probably say, for the sake of your opinion of me, that I'm going to raise an objection and I don't actually endorse it. I'm just mm -hmm. personally worried about it. So I'd like to hear mm -hmm. what you say about it. Um, so I don't know. I, I suppose I just get the feeling that there are a lot of, a lot tighter distinctions between the ways in which God does and doesn't cause sins, sinful acts, uh, you could probably proliferate terms designating different parts of the mm -hmm. situation. Um, so here, I guess, here's one difficulty. Uh, if God intends anything for anything else, it would seem that he wills both things. So if he draws good out of evil, it would seem he would then have to intend the good and the evil. Um, on pain of his agency working in a weird way that I don't understand. Um, but he doesn't on mm -hmm. this account, right? So, I don't know, I suppose, how do you resolve that tension? How do you have a God mm -hmm. who draws good even out of sin without int while intending the good, but while not intending the means to that good? Mm-hmm. No, there, there, there's a couple issues here. But sin brings this out most clearly, because with punishment and with natural corruption, there are conjoined goods, which are right there and part of the willing. Sin is unlike that. Now, the justice, the manifestation of justice through punishment does depend on the sin. The sin isn't chosen as a means to that, though. So when you think about the specification of the act of sin, what am I desiring? Somebody else's wife, somebody else's car. What's happening there is my act is specified by the object and the violation of the use of the violation of the rule, whether it's negligence or whatever it is, is specifying that act. So I'm intending an act of theft. I'm intending an act of murder. God, however, doesn't intend it as theft or murder because he can't. He can, however, allow it. 
creatures are the only things that can commit that kind of sinful act. Now, you run into some problems here, and there are further specifications. Thomas doesn't make them, but I have an article on this. So Scotus wants to talk about sin purely with respect to privation. So Thomas responds to that by talking about how it's also conversion to some sort of good that's disordered. But then you feel like, well, then God is in some way causing sin. And it didn't help in his uh, biblical commentaries. They're very bad, I think. He was using the, most late, the latest scripture scholarship and languages, whereas Thomas's scripture commentaries are better. But Cajetan suggests that God can counsel sin, like when he tells uh, Judas to go and do it quickly. So you have Thomas trying to reread or correct Cajetan on that point. And so you have to distinguish between morally what's going on and the natural uh, being of the act. And morally, God's not causing the sin, but kind of materially or naturally, he's causing everything in it. And especially people reacted to Cajetan because of the Council of Trent and Calvinism. All right. And then further specifications needed to be introduced, not just because of Scotists and Calvinists, but because of Jesuits. Some of them thought that God just has kind of a divine concursus and uh, it can work equally for people and some people go along with it and others don't. Not all Jesuits held it. It's kind of a ridiculous view and it seems to lead to semi-Pelagianism, but they held it didn't because God kind of knows what everybody will do and will create a world in which he chooses some to act well and others not because of his foreknowledge. But, uh, and so there's a lot of, I think that's the way that it is with Thomism. Thomas Aquinas will give you general principles, but very often you've got the confused universal. You're starting out discussions. You're part of a tradition of discussion. There are precisions, but a lot of the precisions aren't in Thomas Aquinas, but they are discussed later on, especially because of Protestants who want to talk about God causing sin and because of some Jesuits who want to speak as if God's causal activity is the same in sin and good acts. Um, does that answer your question? So I'm just saying there's a lot more there, but... Um, You'd have to look at later authors, I think, to get a full treatment. Yeah, and then one over there and over here, I think. I don't know. I'm not sure, actually. So thank you. Thank you for your talk, which I found extremely helpful. Um, I have what may be a very basic question. Uh, and that is, how does Christ's redemptive act of salvation fit into the schema of predestination and reprobation? And the subordinate to that, I guess, is how does the sacrament of baptism, which leads us into the new life of Christ, fit into that schema? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, this is the important issue theologically. My degree's in philosophy, but at any rate... Sometimes we have to go into these things because they're philosophical principles and present company excluded theologians a lot of times don't do theology anymore. 
But uh, yeah, no, I mean, the purpose of the predestination of Christ, right, in the redemption, it's on account of the elect. Now, St. Thomas thinks that why even do you have the incarnation? We don't know if it would happen if people hadn't sinned, but from the Bible, the reason given is original sin, at least in the Bible. So what we know through Revelation, it seems like incarnation is because of original sin, and that makes salvation possible. That's how it happens that we all aren't kind of uh, getting what's due to us by strict justice. It's God's mercy, and it's greater than anything we could imagine. It wouldn't have happened as far as we know from Scripture. I mean, it could have happened... But from scripture, as far as we know, it wouldn't have happened without original sin. And the sin of the people involved, God did not intend the sin of those who crucified Jesus, especially of the uh, chief priests and whatnot. He didn't intend their sin or sin, but he allowed them to sin and something great. I mean, it was a great sin, but something greater came out of it which is the redemption of the human race. And so baptism makes it possible. It gives us uh, our divine sonship. Now, this is the problem why you have limbo uh, with respect to baptism, because people have original sin, and there's no actual sins for them to be punished, but they don't have sanctifying grace. The baptism's unmerited, though, right? We're all lucky if we were baptized as children to be baptized. It wasn't through our own merits. Now, Franciscans, who often pushed the envelope and weren't very close to Augustine, some Franciscans held, well, God doesn't predestine because of foreknowledge from merits, except in the case of infants who die without baptism. God kind of knows they might turn out badly, so he allows them to die without baptism. Doesn't make sense. What would make those statements true? If the baby had lived, the baby would have been a horrible sinner there, right? And then somehow God arranges it so they aren't baptized. Or was that Henry of Gaia? It's somebody after Thomas. Doesn't work. Baptism's just unmerited. Like, like everything else, good. That's that good. Yeah, everything supernatural. Does that help? Yeah, I think your comment that redemption is on account of the elect. Yeah. Probably answers the question most. Yeah, well, in a way, we want to say it's for everybody because God gives sufficient graces. And since the 17th century in Jansenists, we even want to say these aren't just external graces of preaching or whatnot. But there's internal graces that God gives to every adult um, that at least gives them the power to act well, not the action. That wouldn't be sufficient grace. Sufficiency is sufficiency, which means power or ability. First act, not second act. But so you want to make sure that it's for everybody. But ultimately, it's not just, you know, he's not going to do it and then let everybody go to hell except for Christ and his mother, right? It's going to be for those who are in heaven. The whole purpose of the economy of salvation is this unmerited goodness. I mean, the, 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 the least supernatural good 
Thomas has a very high opinion of the order of the universe and the coordinated working of the parts. And this is a greater common good than any other natural good. But the least bit of this supernatural good, you've gone to something outside the universe that's just, I mean, we just don't see it, but that doesn't mean it's not there. It's just greater than anything we can even imagine. I mean, how would you even know the incarnation is possible without the Bible? It might seem like a good idea, but it's just, it's incredible. I mean, it's literally unknowable uh, in, in a strict sense, not, I mean, we know that it is. I think there are uh, facts about what I would freely do and yeah. circumstances God could put me in. And with that in mind, it seems like, so i like to take an example, I think that there's a fact about if a student offered me a bribe, there's a fact about whether I would freely take it or would freely refuse it. And with that in mind, it seems like there are two ways in which God can make a person sinless. One way he can make a person sinless is by carefully choosing circumstances where he knows the person wouldn't, would freely refuse to sin. Mm -hmm. Another possibility, and I wasn't sure if this was the one you were suggesting, is God puts people in various circumstances, and he also uh, wills that they would freely refuse to sin. Was that the view that you were suggesting? Yeah, I mean, Thomas says it explicitly. Okay. It's not just I'm suggesting, it's Thomas's explicit view. Now, it's true that usually you know how people are going to behave. Human society would fall apart if we didn't know this will come to an end at some time, we'll have lunch at some time, etc. And Thomas thinks even, you know, most people aren't very good. They just follow their emotions, and their emotions are regulated by the natural uh, bodies and ultimately the heavenly bodies. So you can pretty well predict what groups of people will do because people aren't very wise and they just follow their feelings. Um, but so the predictability is kind of a, a different issue, whether it's predictable. Also, people with habits are predictable. People, because of their natural complexions, are predict predictable. Because of the social structures, they're predictable. But the question here is a free act involves some sort of ability to do otherwise. So most people are going to mortally sin a lot. It's predictable. But... Are they able not to? Uh, yes, right? Uh, that's, that, that's what the, the issue is. And there's no predicting human action. When, God, when he talks about foreknowledge, he doesn't mean that God can know it in the past because strictly speaking, the future contingents are unknowable. No determinately true or false propositions about them, right? But uh, you can kind of, reason from causes in the present, but God is not within the temporal order. So it's not even knowing ahead of time. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.